Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. All right, let's start with some questions. Sometimes a 10-minute break gives folks an opportunity to come up and be like, what the fuck was that about? So by all means, feel free to pose that question or some slightly more focused version of it. One I have going back quite a bit, um, all the way back to your T-chart on the giant post-it note. When you said the self is the ego, what is the signified self then? Uh, The signified self, I would say, is usually, so you're looking at at this side of it. Is this right? Yeah. Yeah, I tend to put the ego over here at the level of, like, grammatological subject. Uh Uh-huh. And here I'm building on the, um, I'm kind of mixing graph one and graph two from the subversion of the subject essay, kind of leaving off all the ego work that comes along with it Mm -hmm. in order to combine these two things. My impulse here is to, whenever the ego is involved, is to use this as a way of describing our linguistified selves. The parts of us that usually are well represented by that great signifier, I. Then what's the other half, the signifier? Oh, are you asking the question of signifier and signified? Yes, kind of. Yeah. Like, so I, on one hand, you wrote down ego. What do you write down on the other hand? On the other side here? Yeah. I write it unconscious. Unconscious. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Absolutely. And I guess if it would be helpful, I would say over here on the side of the ego with the symbolic, you're going to have signifiers and signifieds. Lacan is primarily interested in taking Saussure and flipping his image of a sign upside down in order to have the signifier, not the signified, be the primary element. Mm hmm. So the instance of the unconscious is another essay from the mid fifties that you can check out where Lacan's doing the work of having signifiers and signifieds popping at the same time, but he really wants to give pride of place to the signifier. Mm -hmm. See, we've got the signified up here, this little bitty withered S if you can see it. The reason why it's small and withered or in in the case of font, it's italicized, is because Lacan is trying to say that it's not worth as much as the capital S signifier that you can see in the image that he offers for the signifier of the lack in the other, also in the same graph of desire. So here what you would see, if you can see that, Mm -hmm. is a capital S as big as the capital A next to it, that's going to be signifier. For the purposes of this sketch over here, I would put signifiers and signifieds 
on the side of our sociolinguistic existence as egos. Egos are constantly wrapped up in the question of how best to signify to others my import as a self, my value, the way that I have my shit together. They're constantly, obsessively, you might even say, thinking about which signifiers can best um, elicit um, recognition as a certain type of person from another being. So I put signifiers and signifieds over there. And but also please remember this, that the unconscious is structured like a language. And when Lacan says this, what he means is that the unconscious, the operational logic of the unconscious is linguistic. It also relies on signifiers and signifieds. So what's repressed into the unconscious in the case of a traumatic event is not the event itself. It's some signifier of that event. Not necessarily a synecdochic signifier that would represent the event, but maybe a metonymic signifier, some fragment of that event that captures it for you. That's what gets repressed. And that's Lacan's point too about his return to Freud in this period. So he's saying, basically, all I'm doing is rereading Freud in the wake of a new discipline that he didn't have access to called linguistics. And so what he's saying is what Freud is talking about with primary and secondary repression are signifiers. Or in the case of Freud's essay on anxiety, it's all about the signal of anxiety. And Lacan's like, ding, ding, ding. Winner, winner, chicken dinner, that's a signifier, bitch. Lacan constantly wants to say that if Freud had just had access to a department of linguistics, there'd be no need for Jacques Lacan. Lacan is just linguistifying Freudian thought. And part of what he does with that is to say that the ego is wrapped up in signifiers and signifieds. But the unconscious is a repository of repressed signifiers. And it operates the same way that a language does, which allows those of us who study the history and philosophy of communication to say something like this. Just as the unconscious is structured like a language, we also know that languages have their own unconscious. The word for that is etymology lexical history, philology, the way that a word or a phrase can have some sort of a hidden meaning. Like my dad likes to use the phrase rule of thumb. I'm like, bro, you know that was from like when people used to beat women and children. And the rule of thumb said you could legally beat these humans as long as you didn't use a stick that was bigger than your thumb. So the definition of a switch was that, I'm from Indiana, you also just pardon me, but like the definition of a switch was, it was one of them sticks that could make a whipping noise as it came through the air. It was bendable, it was pliable. You weren't being beaten, you were being disciplined, learning the rule of thumb. I explained that to him, he was appalled, and yet he still uses the phrase, so go figure. Like I said, I'm not that kind of doctor. But that's an example of how 
language, expressions, signifiers, phrases can have their own unconscious. So the great insight between language and the unconscious is also one that's shot through with a rich understanding of signification. So it's a great question, and I would want to put signifiers on the other side too, just to be fair. And I think that in the future, maybe what I would do is, I teach this stuff all the time, but maybe what I would do is just offer like, just post some lectures on YouTube where we're just looking at what Lacan is doing with signification and signifiers. Because everybody else can read the Freudian stuff, but then the advent of linguistics, and here I'm a professor of communication studies, could be the like helpful key that unlocks what Lacan is doing. So I appreciate that question. I think it's dynamite. What else do you all got? Since you just brought in the Cicer piece for a second, I'm not deep with him, but that reminded me of a thought I had a while back and I want to just check this out. So if the unconscious is structured like a language and Saussure kind of posed that the sign like points to the arbitrariness of the sign, right? Yeah. The sign is just yeah. thing. there's nothing like inherently elephant about the word elephant or whatever, right? Yeah. So yeah. then the fact of its meaning, hang on, I had this, this was like in a chat I had or something. Uh, the fact of it standing in for a concept gains meaning in its relationship to other signs. That's right. Similar That's right. to the signifying chain for Lacan, right? Like it's in the retro version that you actually understand the final, you don't know what you mean until you get to the end kind of deal. Yep, that's part that's right. of it. Yep, and and what you, what you're looking at when when you when you dip into Saussure here is language as a differential system, where words only have meaning insofar as they connect to other words. <clears throat> so if I get a dictionary out and I look up the word cat, it's going to tell me like fuzzy four-legged thing. Well, in order to understand what that means, I have to also understand the meaning of the word fuzzy which has its own entry in the dictionary. And I look up fuzzy and fuzzy has five or six words behind it as well. And so you get this, what now in the digital age we would call a network. You get a whole network or a constellation of terms. And it's a differential network because cat doesn't equal fuzzy. But in order to understand cat, you have to understand its differential relationship to the word fuzzy. All right, who did it? Together mode, what a joke. What a, what a cruel and unusual punishment to have us be together mode back at Stonehenge again. You know, we're gonna talk about perversion. Believe it or not, the seminar on anxiety is about the clinical structure of perversion. And we're gonna talk about sadism and masochism. And whoever just put us into together mode Pay attention when we get to the discussions of sadism. I'm just kidding, of course. That's the only sadistic joke I know. So yes, um, it is important to understand Sassur here. It's great to understand um, the arbitrary nature of a signifier's relationship to a signified. And here what he means here is a word in relation to its meaning or its concept. So you have in Saussure crash course here, y'all. You have a signified and a signifier that are bound up together. There's a word and its meaning. And they're caught up together in the singular entity known as a sign. And a sign has a referent. So when I say the word lion, an image comes to your mind. And the word plus the image is the sign. And then there's that thing outside your window looking in at you right now, wishing you'd come out so we could have you for dinner. 
a real lion out there in the world. That would be the referent. And Sasur now is talking about how signifiers get linked up with signifieds. And Akim's right, there's no necessary relationship. It's an arbitrary relationship. What interests Lacan most about this part of, of Sasur's thought is the differential relation that has to be maintained for a signifier to link up and stay linked up with a signified. In order for cat to mean a fuzzy four-legged thing, it has to exist in a differential relation to all these other terms. So the unconscious is very much like this as well. You repress one signifier from one traumatic event, and then you repress another signifier from another traumatic event, and down there in the deep, hot, molten core of yourself, these motherfuckers link up. And now you've got signifiers that are kind of hooked to each other in a differential relation. They are still connected to each other, but connected by difference. The same way you and your codependent partner are connected, but also by difference. Is this all making sense? Yeah, so that's what he's up to with Sasur. I'm happy to field a couple more questions before we launch into the next part. Sam, I have a question. So in order for to have the unconscious, you have to go through castration first? Yes. Is that okay? Yes, and it's part of the reason why there's an ambiguous relationship between psychosis and the unconscious. It's tempting, and sometimes people read Lacan as in seminar three, as saying that the unconscious doesn't exist for the psychotic. And it's more accurate if you read the later Lacan in the 20s on the synthome to say that actually what happens is the psychotic just has a kind of screwed up relationship to the unconscious. And the reason why their relationship to the unconscious is screwed up is because the psychotic has a broken relationship to language. It's their relationship to the symbolic that is fundamentally jacked. And let me go even more precise than that. The fundamental um, breakage for the psychotic relative to language is that they have repudiated the unary trait. They have refused the no. They refused prohibition. They absolutely denied it. They foreclosed it. It's the technical term in English that we use. And what that did was it denied them access to a place in the symbolic. And because they have no place in the symbolic, the psychotic then has to look for even bigger others, but they're not symbolic others, they're imaginary others. Colonel Sanders, the Queen of England, Barack Obama, the Russians, they're all reading my emails. You can see here like the paranoiac structure of the psychotic coming into play here. They live their life in relation to enormous imaginary others that do the work of containing them, if you will, that the symbolic does for the rest of us. We don't need the delusion. We don't need the hallucination of a giant imaginary other like aliens trying to read my mind, which is why I wear tinfoil every night. We don't need that because the symbolic holds us. Language, society, 
law, neighborhood gives us meaning. And the reason why it can give us meaning is because we accepted castration. We accepted the no. We said, fine, whatever, you win. I'll stop crying now and I'll use my words. And the parent immediately says, terrific, Johnny. Now that you've used your words, I know exactly what you want. You can have it. And we're going to go get ice cream and you're mommy's little boy. You see what I'm saying? So you suddenly have an identity. You have a place. Things start to work better for you when you use your words. Little kids, for instance, they hit a lot too. They don't get what they want and they'll just like whack you over the head with some shit. And you could have a sibling who's like, use your words as they're being pushed down the stairs by a toddler. Use your words as they're being thrown off a cliff. So the idea here is that language, despite all of the violence that it really does to bodies, is an alternative to violence. It's how you get expressions like sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Now, we know that's not true. Words hurt like hell. But the idea of language as an alternative to violence is also well, um, well emblazoned in the split subject. The split subject is somebody who can choose to operationalize their sociolinguistic self without resorting to the violence that only their body can effect, if that makes sense. You have access to both. You know, right? You can talk your way as much as you can, but when you can't talk anymore, then sometimes you got to fight a fool. You got to throw hands or whatever the hell you get into. But that happens at some level. This kind of recalcitrance happens all the time in human life, too. Your body, if it hasn't already, will eventually tell you no. It will resist your fantasies at the level of an injury, usually. So there are these ways that. Um, the body pushes back. And when it does so in a way that's startling and unexpected, that is called an encounter with the real. The real is that pop that your knee makes just before you collapse while talking with somebody about how much of a jogger you are. But we were talking about desire. Got time for one more question before I give you the rundown on desire here and set us up for anxiety, so to speak. All right, I'm gonna take three passes at desire, each more complicated than the next. Ideally, one or two of these, maybe three are gonna land for you. Each of them is going to be important in its own way. And remember what's at stake here. Desire is the antidote to anxiety. It is a defense against anxiety in the case of the neurotic. So what we're looking at now is a kind of alchemical potion. The structure, the chemical ingredients that are gonna go into something that you can cook up for a client suffering from generalized adrift or acute anxiety. That's Lacan's wager here is that if you understand how desire works, you will understand how to treat someone, maybe even your own anxiety. It's a wager. It's his wager, not mine. I'm just gonna try and tell you 
how it works. Okay, first, recall the crying baby. The baby cries, I show up with a blanket. Now, if the child was cold, I give it a blanket, the cold goes away. The child's need has been met. But when you bring a kid a blanket, you're not just bringing them some object, some material thing that can satisfy their need. You're also caring for them. What matters as much, if not more so to the child, is your attention more than the blanket, which is how you can get kids who are like, I'm hungry. And you're like, well, how about this to eat? No. How about that to eat? No. How about something along these lines? No. They're not actually hungry. If they were hungry, they'd take the first thing you gave them and eat it. If they're hungry for anything, it's your attention. So there's a difference here. When need has been met, there's some aspect of demand that lingers. Because when you bring a child a blanket, you don't just say, here, this is for your cold. You say, I'm bringing this to you because I care for you. I'm the kind of person that cares for you. I love you. That's what you tell the child. And what I would like to suggest is that the child's demand for love and affection and care is insatiable. And so is yours. Nobody on this call has ever been loved too much. You may have been smothered and felt anxious about that. You may have had a helicopter parent or partner in your life, a roommate that just never would get out of your stuff. That's not love, though. Love here means care. Love here means recognition, affection, attention. And it's insatiable. We can never get enough of it. The first definition of desire I want to give you is this. Desire is what's left of demand after need has been met. Desire is what's left of demand after need has been met. And you could even run it as a mathematical equation. Desire equals demand minus need. So here it is again. A child cries, you bring it a blanket. Their need for warmth has been satisfied. And what we know about needs is that once they're satisfied, they go away. If you have a need known as hunger, you put some food on it and it goes away. But the demand that the child has, the request is a better translation from the French. The request that the child puts forth when they cry is always also a cry for attention, for care, to be held. And that demand, and that is what's left of demand after need has been met. It's a part of the child that is insatiable, that will never get enough of your attention. 
That's the first and most basic understanding of desire. Desire is what's left of demand after need has been met. Because when you show up with a blanket, you're telling a child that you love them. And think about it this way too. For those of you that deal with clients that suffer from eating disorders, if every time the child cries, you show up with food, what you are communicating to that child is anytime you feel upset, you should expect to eat. This is how we deal with you feeling upset. We feed you. Now, you, it doesn't take much to get from here to some pretty interesting and troubling eating disorders. If every time you cry, your primary caregiver brought you food, what they're communicating to you is, this is what it means to care for someone like you. You're the kind of person that needs to be fed. This is what it means to love you. You are loved when eating. You see? See how this goes? Whatever it is that you bring a child, you're not just bringing them something to satisfy their material need. You're also telling them that this is what you should expect from others at the register of love. This is what it means to love someone like you. So for instance, if every time you cried, your parents said, shut up, you're fine, there's nothing wrong with you. Think about how that's gonna play out. You will feel most loved by someone who ignores you. You will feel most loved when you are not attended to, and so on and so forth. So the stakes are high in how you respond to this kind of stuff. Next level, I want to talk about three kinds of desire that builds on this. Desire for another, desire of another, and desire as another. I think this is a pretty important riff. It brings us one step closer to anxiety. Desire for another has to do with care. It's what we were just talking about. First and foremost, desire is for another person. It repeats the first words that were uttered on the telephone. Come here, I want you, Edison said to Watson. Come here, I want you. We could unpack that all day. First and foremost though, it's a desire for care from another person, which is what we were just talking about. The desire that is left after need has been met, this remnant of demand is a desire for another person's attention. So it's as simple as that. Desire for is care or attention or affection, whatever your word is. Now here's the deal. And this is how things get challenging. In order to get other people's attention, in order to elicit their care, you sometimes have to jump through some hoops. For instance, you might know that somebody that you're all crushed out on 
is really into alternative R&B music. You see, you know they're into alt R&B. And you might not like that shit, but you know they like it. And so here's what you think to yourself. If I start wearing some alt R&B merch around this person, they're going to think that I'm into alt R&B and then they're going to be attracted to me. This is desire of. And here the word is not care, but identification. You try to identify your ways with someone else. For those of you that read Kenneth Burke and contemporary rhetorical theory. You try to make them desire you by identifying with other stuff that they're into. So if you know that they're into a particular band and you know that you're going to see them at the bus stop at this particular time or blah, 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 on this particular day, you might get a t-shirt that has that band name on it and hope that they notice it and strike up a conversation with you. This suggests that we dress and act in ways that we hope will make us agreeable to others, likable. In other words, desirable. It's not enough to cry. What the child realizes is that by using mommy's magic words, I can make her want me more. So I have a friend who told me that her kid was hitting a lot. And I said, what did you do? And she said, I told him that I don't like to be around people that hit. And I said, what do you mean? She's like, I told him that anytime he'd start hitting, I was just going to walk away and leave him there. I said, what did he do? She said, I'm pretty sure he shit his pants. And then he stopped hitting because he realized that by being a pacifistic kid, he could secure his mom's desire in a way that hitting wasn't going to work. It's not that he wanted to stop hitting. It's that he wanted his mom. So in order to get care from her, he had to guess what she wants from other people, namely nonviolence, and then identify with that in order to make himself agreeable to her. So we talk a lot about kids, right? You can think about kids liking car keys, for instance. Little babies love car keys. They don't like car keys because that shit jingles and makes noises. They like car keys because every time you grab them, it means you and your desire are going somewhere away from them. It's not like the dog. The dog hears the car keys and comes running because it's like, let's do this. I'm ready for a walk. Are you ready for a walk? I'm ready for a walk. The child sees the car keys and sees your attention directed away from them. Kids love car keys for that reason. Kids also love smartphones. I would wager, as a good Lacanian, that they don't love smartphones because they have shiny, brilliant screens. They love smartphones because they see you, the primary caregiver, loving that phone. The child who sees the primary caregiver smiling at the little black flat box is going to say, what's on that box, bitch? What's that box got that I don't have? First thing I'm going to do, I'm going to grab that box and put it in my dirty diaper, and I'm going to run down the hallway. 
Or if you're a super aggressive kid and kids do this, I'm gonna put that box in the trash can. I'm gonna put your phone in the toilet because that's what I do with shit I don't like. Shit that, in other words, divides your attention and directs it away from me. But the move in grabbing the phone and grabbing the car keys is an identificatory one. It's if I associate my ways with the phone, will you also smile at me like that? In order to have desire for another met, we oftentimes have to approximate and identify with the desire of another. Do you see where I'm going with this? This is something that occurs around the clock. It is something that occurs in the one thing that everybody on this call has done today. Guaranteed, guaranteed. Everybody on this call has looked in the mirror at least once today. That mirror is one of the ways that we approximate the desire of another. When we look in the mirror, we ask ourselves, am I desirable from another's perspective? Am I desirable? Not do these pants make my ass look fat in the bad way, but am, am I desirable from another's point of view? Do I look like the kind of person that could elicit care and attention from another? And if the answer is no, you change your clothes. And if the answer is yes, you step out the door. Which brings us to the third flourish of desire, desire as. When you change your mind about an outfit in front of a mirror, you're not just approximating someone else's desire in order and in hopes of getting their attention. You are desiring like another. You are desiring as another. So this is the third move from desire for to desire of to desire as. And this is what Lacan means in full when he says that man's desire is the desire of the other. I desire as an other. I want what you want. Which raises the question, the basic question of fantasy. What exactly is it that you want again, big other? Fantasy is a split and divided subject living their lives in relation to what they guess other people want. That's the basic fundamental fantasy, which is why it's written like this. You are an uncertain being. The lozenge means living your life in relation to for these purposes. What you guess other people are into. And you'll notice on the graph of desire on page four, this is the left turn out of desire. It leads straight to fantasy. You as an uncertain being living your life in relationship to little a, which here means what you think others want.
This is why on page 22, Lacan says that fantasy is the support of desire. He says it at the bottom of 22, about six lines up from the bottom. Fantasy is the support of desire. It props up desire. It instantiates desire. This is what it means by that. We could go on about this for, of, as structure. But in the interest of time, and with the full understanding that these are going to be recorded lectures and you can always just come back and get them whenever you want them, and ideally perhaps even transcribed, I want to move on to a more important chart, a more important graph that is a development of this stuff and brings us right to the edge of what Lacan is doing with anxiety. For that, though, I need to go back to the strange board. So bear with me a second here. Okay. So first, real quick, to summarize what we were just doing, I'll get a new marker. We were showing how the other is the basis for my desire. And I alluded to the fact that fantasy, I'll bring it out over here just to get it out of the way, is a prop for desire. So this is one of the ways that we start building up the graph of desire. Now, I delivered those lectures last summer. We're not working it now. Again, for those of you that are just now joining us, if you want my subversion of the subject lectures, I'm happy to hook you up with it. And we walk through and develop like the entire graph of desire from the ground up. I'm moving fast and loose with this stuff here tonight because I'm trying to bring us through an understanding of desire to what Lacan is up to with anxiety, the topic of this lecture series. So let's start with this final turn toward desire. And I want to bring us back to a kind of, I don't know, it's not heteronuclear, but I want to bring us back to the experience of childhood. And I want to start talking about this in a more graphic way, literally at the level of the graph. So Lacan, I believe, in seminar eight, wants to talk about how desire gets jacked up. And to do that, he trots out a pretty great graph here. So here down here, we'll have the child, the split subject, if you will. And this child has desire for another. So I'm gonna put four right here. Can you all see this okay? You cannot. Is my background blurry again? Oh, wait, some of you are nodding yes. Okay, that's better then, right? Okay, I'll, I'll bring the camera uh, closer as much as I can. Desire for I have written up here, usually I just write MF, because I want us to have the capacity to think about this as a motherfucker. But I like this as maternal function. This is or maternal figure. 
This doesn't mean that this is somebody with a vulva. This is not an anatomical assignment. This is a subject position that anybody can occupy. You can be a bio man, you can be a bio woman and perform the maternal function. FX means function. I would also refer to this being up here as the primary caregiver. Whoever the primary caregiver is, that is going to be the individual that performs the maternal function. It doesn't mean they're breastfeeding the child or any of these typical like anatomical actions. It just means that that is the person that the child thinks of first when they say, I want someone to care for me. That's why I put four here, desire for another. Now, what the child realizes, as we know, is that the maternal figure is not just drawn to them, but also drawn to other things which is why I'm going to put of at this top arrow, if you can see it here. Sorry about this. Whatever it is that the child imagines the mother wanting in Lacanian algebra is symbolized by the lowercase Greek phi. This lowercase Greek V, this is an imaginary object. It's an imaginary object, primarily because we don't actually know what the maternal figure wants. In fact, they don't even know what they want. It could be anything. This could be the phone. This could be the car keys. This could be the sibling. It could be whatever else the child thinks the maternal figure is interested in. And so what the child decides to do is identify with this imaginary object. Here again, we see desire of verging on desire as, because the child's going to say, I also am into smartphones. Now will you give me your attention? I like phones too. I laugh at the jokes that you laugh at. Now will you give me your attention? So what Lacan says here is that in order for the child to meet its desire for another, sometimes they have to go a more circuitous route of identifying with something that they imagine the maternal figure to be interested in, in order to garner their attention. Now, what Lacan's going to say is, this is an entirely imaginary enterprise that the child is engaged in. But what he wants to note is, and yet it is functioning symbolically, because it is at one remove that the child is approximating the desire and interests of the parent. This direct path, in order to get the mom to turn her attention back toward the kid, the child has to move through this symbolic enterprise where 
they approximate the maternal figure's desire by identifying a certain object in the world and then linking themselves to it. So it's a very roundabout way to go, where desire is working at the level of an object that is supposed to approximate or represent it. And Lacan's point is, y'all, that's called a signifier. That's called a sign, that's a signal. This lowercase v is a signal of maternal desire that the child imagines. And Lacan's point is, and as such, it is operating linguistically. So even though what we're dealing with here is an imaginary triangle, Lacan's point is, it is underwritten by a symbolic act. The symbolic is always already there. Now I'm gonna pause here for a second and I wanna take some questions about this. Can I clarify anything? Because the next move is the crucial one. And I wanna make sure we've got a good understanding of how this plays out. If you want 10 more examples, we can go that route. If you want to clarify some terms, let me know what, what you need. I have a question. Go ahead. So, in the way I was sort of absorbing the information, I was thinking about Panasian's class, um, about, I guess it's more like object relations, you know, does mommy make baby or does the mother, like they sort of like symbolically make each other. Um, so when you're talking about the signifier, is that how um, the mom also teaches the child to use their intuition to hold their emotions and, and things like that? you know, the, the symbolic form of being able to withstand tolerance, you know, developing that frustration tolerance. It could be, it could be. What Lacan via Freud would call the reality principle would be something that a kid could learn. And that would be a learning that would put them in the field of the symbolic. It's funny too, when Freud was thinking about the reality principle, it's not the pleasure principle, but the reality principle. He says, what the hell, I need a good example of this. And he was like, oh shit, I got one, foreplay. The way that humans delay gratification and the way that they build sexual intensity at the level of foreplay is a great illustration of the reality principle because it shows our ability to wait and endure frustration in order to achieve jouissance. And this is one of the most famous lines from the essay that gives us the graph of desire. When castration occurs, jouissance must be given up, but only in order to be regained by the law of desire. So you give up jouissance when you accept castration. But because castration puts you in the field of the symbolic, it gives you access to lack and desire. And desire is one of the pathways that can lead to jouissance. If you can figure out a way to get from desire to the drive. And we're not doing that yet, if we're gonna do it at all. I told you there was need, 
demand, desire, and the drive. The drive is the register at which jouissance gets to be reactivated in the field of castration, in the realm of the symbolic. It could be as simple as some erotic poetry before you get busy. That would count as the reality principle. But Desiree, that's also illustrates this kind of like endurance of frustration that a child would learn early on. And Lacan's point is that is the pinnacle of the symbolic with its emphasis on the reality principle and the ability to wait and defer gratification or at least um, enjoyment more precisely. What else about this little image before I tear it to pieces with another different color? I'm still here, I'm just sorting out markers. Okay, in order to be a good Lacanian, you have to be able to count to four. Right? Some of y'all nodding because you know exactly what this is about. You have to be able to count to four. The problem with the object-oriented school, Desiree, that you're talking about here from Lacan's point of view, is that it can only count to three. One, two, three. The missing fourth element that Lacan is going to introduce is the paternal function. And I'll write it in a different color in hopes of making it pop. And here again, I'm going to emphasize this as a function because I don't want to suggest that you have to be an anatomical male to perform it. Paternity doesn't have anything to do with anatomy for Lacan. It is a function. It is a subject position that anyone can occupy. And the truth is, you don't even have to be a body to occupy the paternal subject position. The maternal figure can invoke the paternal function by saying something like, just wait until your father gets home and finds out what you've been doing. Or if you want to keep it a little more abstract, if Jesus could see what you just did, he would be so proud. That invocation of a third party here, a third subject, is important. Now, what is the paternal function? It is nothing other than the name of the Father. Which, as I said earlier, is always also the no of the father. The non of the father is the non of the father. Now, what does that mean? The no we're talking about here is a prohibitive no. It's a prohibition. It's a prohibition against something. Now, I told you earlier that the basic structure of society is the law, and the basic structure of the law is prohibition. And the basic prohibition of society is a prohibition against enjoyment. 
thou shalt not enjoy. Jouissance is off limits, which is why it feels so good. Part. The paternal function is that of this prohibition. The technical word for this in Lacanian terms, again, is castration. And the move that the paternal figure makes is a prohibitive castrating move. It is going to take something from this chart, and I'm going to draw it as best I can. <clears throat> The paternal function is to cut into this imaginary mother-child triad and say, nobody gets the phallus. Nobody gets it. To negate it, to subtract it, to subtract the imaginary phallus from the child's fantasy by saying the following, mommy doesn't have it and you don't get to be it for her. That's the paternal no. It is a prohibition against ever becoming the object of the maternal figure's desire. And in this sense, its primary purpose is protection. What is introduced by this cut into the imaginary triangle is a barrier between the child and the maternal figure. It prohibits the child from dabbling in mommy's desire. And this is protective. Why? Because mommy's desire is so big, so engulfing, that it'll eat you alive. It is an important protective function. Mm -hmm. If this is not in place, if the paternal function does not cut in and subtract the imaginary phallus, from the equation, the result is anxiety mm. or perversion if you happen to get off on anxiety. Because what happens then is that the child keeps living out this fantasy that if they could just approximate what mommy desires, then all would be well and I would get my desire for her met. The paternal function is to step in and say, no. Nobody gets that. And so the way you read the paternal function as castration is to say that it marks the emergence of a symbolic lack of an imaginary object. So this is a signifier. It's a symbol of something that used to be there, but then has now been removed. 
Sometimes Lacan will write it also as a negative one. In the subversion of the subject essay, you see this. If the paternal function goes well, this cut is maintained. And this little subtracted fee is precisely what's going to give you the lack needed to activate your own desire. This is what's cracking in the Lacanian world. In seminar 10, he's suggesting that the subtracted imaginary object, saying that you can no longer guess the maternal figure's desire, is precisely what introduces a gap or a lack by way of a cut or a barrier between the child and the primary caregiver. And it's into that lack that the child can move with their own desire. Mm. When anxiety strikes, what is happening is that somehow, some way, something else is stepping in to this position. Something else is filling in and that lack is being removed. That mm -hmm. gap or that cut, that barrier, something is stumbling into it. Lacan at this point just tells us that something is made to appear where nothing should in fact be left. Hmm. The paternal function should subtract and leave a gap or a cut or an opening or a barrier, however you want to put it, a bar, if you will, between the child and the primary caregiver. Anxiety is what happens when usually the primary caregiver just rolls right over that shit and nevertheless tries to put something new here. What that does is it effectively cancels out the object cause of the child's own desire by denying the child access to lack. This is what Lacan means when he talks about anxiety as a lack of lack. The lack that would give you an opportunity, some breathing room for your own desire to emerge is taken from you and you are engulfed by the desire of the big other. This is why at the end of our readings for today, you can hear Lacan describing this experience, which is just the opposite of what Freud thought. Freud thought anxiety was triggered by the subtraction of an object. Lacan's point is no, bro, it's the opposite. Anxiety is triggered by an object that you can't escape. It's not separation from the object that triggers anxiety. It is the objects fully engulfing you. The problem that triggers anxiety is that you can't escape. So if you read at the bottom of 53, notice in the middle of page 53, Lacan starts talking about inhibitions, symptoms, and anxiety. So he's back to Freud again, right where he started our readings for today. Freud tells us, or sounds like he's telling us, that anxiety is the reaction signal to the loss of an object. Lacan comes along and says, a few lines down, 
Anxiety isn't the signal of a lack, but of something that has to be conceived of at a duplicated level as the failing of the support that lack provides. The paternal function, when it cuts in and interrupts the imaginary love triad that the child has with the primary caregiver, is providing a support. Mm -hmm. The cut that the paternal figure introduces is the support that only lack can provide. Don't you know that it's not longing for the maternal breast that provokes anxiety? Lacan continues on page 53, but it's imminence. What provokes anxiety is everything that announces to us, that lets us glimpse that we're going to be taken back into the lap. It is not contrary to what is said, the rhythm of the mother's alternating presence and absence, the proof of this is that the infant revels in, the, in repeating this game of presence and absence. Here he's referring to Freud's Beyond the Pleasure Principle and the game that little Ernest is playing, Fort Da. The security of presence is the possibility of absence, etc., etc. Nah, Lacan is getting to this. The most anguishing thing for the infant is precisely the moment when the relationship upon which he's established himself of the lack that turns him into desire is disrupted. Anxiety is what happens when the lack that promises to turn you into desire is disrupted. And this relationship is most disrupted when there's no possibility of any lack, when you don't have any breathing room. That is the most disruptive thing that can happen to a split subject on the verge of finding their way and themselves in the symbolic as desiring subjects. Notice how he ends this. When there's no possibility of any lack, when the mother is on his back all the while, and especially when she's wiping his backside, this is one model of demand of the demand that will never let up. Few lines down. Anxiety isn't about the loss of the object, but its presence. The objects aren't missing. Final line of that section. Once more, there's no lack. That's the problem. That is the cause of anxiety. When lack has somehow been supplanted, my friends, it is precisely 9 p.m. I'm happy to hang out for a bit and talk more. We got through a lot of this tonight. I'm damn impressed. And like most starts, this one requires a little bit more from me. But we touched on some key pages. We still have work to do in this section. And we're definitely going to be picking up where we leave off tonight in two weeks with more under our belt, more readings by Lacan. In the meantime, let me suggest a couple of things. First, this is all going to be recorded and made available to each of you. I'll send an email out that'll give you a link to these recordings so you can go in and listen to them all. With any amount of luck, they'll also be transcribed. But at this point to start, I think we'll just have recordings of them. 
If you find yourself needing help with some of these concepts, I want to recommend this book by Dylan Evans, A Lacanian Dictionary of Psychoanalysis. It's pretty good. It's pretty reliable. I think it's a good book to have on your shelf. If money is an issue, send me an email and I will do everything I can to ensure that you receive a copy of that book because I think it's that important. Now, with that said, I want to open this up to more questions. I realize it's 9 p.m., so if you got a dip, dip. But I'm happy to stick around and field some more questions or comments, whatever's on your mind. Oh, and please also note that my wacky post-it notes, I'll also take a picture of each of those and send them to you as well. So you'll have a clear image of what the hell all those scribbles are about. Anyway, floor is open. What's on your mind? Hey, Sam, how's it going? Great, outstanding. What's up? Um, so page 13, this table, I guess you'd call it. Uh, curious kind of what's going on there. Uh, I can't really make heads or tails of what he's what he's on about. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I can, yeah. I can make it's, it a bit more specific or is that, is that is that good? No, it's totally fine. Yeah. So what he's doing here is he's trying to figure out a way to deal with Freud's primary contribution on anxiety. An essay that's called Inhibition, Symptoms and Anxiety. So you can see the downward and to the right trend from inhibition to symptom to anxiety. Now, what Lacan wants to suggest is that somehow he's got something to offer on this topic. So at this point in the seminar, he's trying to come up with a really cute and clever way to diagnose Freud's contribution. So he's going to start with this chart that has difficulty along the chronological or x-axis and movement or mobility along the Y um, or diachronic axis here. So if you start with inhibition, that's much less difficult to experience than embarrassment. But inhibition, and you can read what he's doing with this, so it starts, the discussion starts on page 10, and it's him kind of ramping up through like this logical pool to the meaning of each of these words. But what he wants to suggest is that as inhibition is mobilized, it becomes more and more tumultuous. So inhibition to emotion to turmoil. And then he wants to say, and as inhibitions become more challenging, they become impediments, which he refers to here as like a narcissistic capture of the subject which is why he puts it right above the symptom, because the neurotic subject is captured by the symptoms of their own disorder. That's partly what Lacan is doing here. So when inhibition becomes difficult, more difficult, you'll see somebody who's not just inhibited, but totally tripping over themselves at the level of their symptomatology. So this is somebody who has a weird tick, who has a, a slip who has, you know, just they're symptomatic. 
This would be a neurotic person who's totally wrapped up in some signal or signifier um, of what ails them. And the word he uses here is impediment. So he wants to say that impediment is a more extremely difficult experience than inhibition. And he talks about this on page 10. So all the way through page, the top of page 11. And then he gets to embarrassment, which is interesting because as I read this, embarrassment is like a slight form of anxiety. What he's doing with, with embarrassment here is that it puts it's us in a bind, which is interesting that he also brings this back to the word for pregnant. If you read what he's doing here with embarrassment leading up to it. Embarrassment is a split subject that is not captured and seized by their symptomatic issues, but it's somebody who has a slight form of anxiety. It suggests somebody who is bound up and confused by or with themselves. That's how I read embarrassment here. So it's more difficult than impediment, which is more difficult than inhibition. And then similarly, as you move down the chart, inhibition to emotion to turmoil, um, that stuff starts on page 11 and culminates in page 12. I don't think that there's much to be learned at the level of this table. Or maybe to put it a little better, I don't think that all the work that he puts into it has a has a significant payoff. I don't think the payoff outweighs the labor that goes into this. Because we don't really learn anything except that Lacan can come up with creative charts. Like what's up with the X's? Why aren't there X's here? Why are there X's here? What is there a way to fill this in? You might have a different experience with this, but I did not get much from that table that I found useful. That makes me feel better about it because yeah. I was anguishing <laughs> through it. Yeah. Uh, there's an interesting like companion to this specific section where this, I don't know if you can see this, this lady fills in the X's. Can you see this or am I? Oh yeah, acting out and passage to the act. Yeah, That's yeah. Yep. Great. And she goes through 30 pages of complex work on this. But yeah, I, I was feeling similarly that it would seem like a lot of labor to get to not you know, much. So. Here's the thing, you just never know. This is the nature of intellectual work is you get into this material and sometimes there's a big payout and sometimes there's not. That's part of why it's it's a gamble and I use the word wager very seriously here. Yeah. One thing that is worth taking away from this is that at this point, Lacan is trying to say that anxiety is not an emotion. It is an affect. Emotion is a very regulated, linguistified experience. Emotion is usually something that you can describe. You can be like, I'm angry now. I feel sad. Emotions lend themselves to language. Affects do not. Affects suggest a kind of intensification that can only be felt at the level of the body. The affect doesn't say I'm angry. It says, ah, it screams. 
It suggests something beyond language, beyond expression. And I think that what Lacan is here trying to say is that um, what he wants to do with anxiety is put it in the field of affect, which is why on page 14, he introduces that term. Mm -hmm. Anxiety as an affect, about eight or nine lines from the top. It's not an emotion, but an affect. I honestly think that's one of the primary stakes at this section. But I haven't done any of the secondary literature on this, and, and I usually don't. I just read the Lacan stuff. So I'm sure there are smarter people out there who have been able to get into this table and make something of it. Um, but it sounds like, Cody, what the piece that you read, it you sound it sounded like it was not helpful. For sure. Theater. Yeah. 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 Right. I would I'm glad I'm glad to relieve that. I had a quick question on um so so uh, with the paternal function as kind of this barrier um between mother and child um that kind of gets overwritten in the case of anxiety or oh, by the mother, right? In a sense. Yeah. So I'm having trouble like understanding that as a lack of lack when that to me that's like you're put the, the child is then put in the place to experience mother's lack in all of its intensity and, and therefore all of her desire. Right? Yeah, I guess the, the idea here is that um, it's not his or her lack that the child is experiencing, but someone else's. And and that's the issue here is that to put it very plainly at the risk of of of, of uh, making a mistake here. Um, anxiety is when you are so caught up in someone else's lack and desire that you don't have any room to develop and experience your own. Gotcha. So to be precise here, Nicholas, I think what we could say is the lack that is lacking in the experience of anxiety it's your own. Is, is your own yes mm -hmm. that's and yeah that, that's, okay. that's the problem here is that you are you are invited into this this um barred other this desirous other you are invited into whatever the hell it is they're going to get up to mm -hmm. hence the image of the praying mantis whether you are turned on and ready to have some murderous sex with a female praying mantis is beside the point. You are so concerned about whether that's even an opportunity right. that you don't have a chance to decide what you might actually want. Her desire, the praying mantis's desire is so big and so overwhelming that it deprives you of what you need to carve out your own. Does that make sense? So I, I yeah. see getting at. I think that's a really important question for clarifying what we're doing here. Yeah, yeah. Does it have just because the first thing that popped in my mind was the stuff he was doing with like obsession, um, and the obsessive is one who believes they don't lack. So they're they would be the one that's so caught up almost in the ideal of perfection or this, whatever the other wants to, to the point where they you know, have to decipher what they want all the time that they don't realize that they're lacking their own lack almost. I don't know if that made sense, but. 
It does, and we we can we can chart it out on the um, on this field here. Bruce Fink has some pretty good charts for for understanding obsession that I think are useful. So he'll usually show up and want to chart um, like human relationships along something like this. And so you have a split subject, and this could be a barred other two. The obsessive is somebody who is going to who can't handle the desirousness of another. It drives up the wall. So they're going to cancel this person out, but they want to claim and keep a part of that person that the obsessive feels like can complete them and make them whole. Okay. So the obsessive is somebody who um, is going to be grossed out or disgusted or repulsed by the desire of the other, but nevertheless expects the other to participate in the obsessive's desire. Hmm. If that makes sense. So, you, so your desire grosses me out, but nevertheless, here's what you can do to get me off. Gotcha. So the obsessive might have a lot to say during sex, for instance, commandments, telling the other how to act. Hold it right there. Do that. Do this. Don't do that. Stop. Tell this. Pull my hair. All this kind of stuff. So you might have somebody who is issuing commands in a way that cancels out the desire of the other. Because, right, what if what if I don't enjoy pulling hair? You feel me? Yeah. The obsessive doesn't care about that. Because all they want from you is your part, is that little A that you can give them. And the hysteric, of course, moves in the other direction. They cancel out themselves as split subject and only want to be your little A. They want to be the thing that arouses you. Got it. So the hysteric moves in the opposite direction. But these are two basic subtypes of neurosis, right? And, and and common, very common, according to the clinicians that, that I talk with about this. But again, I'm not that kind of doctor, so you guys are. Oh, thank, thank you, that's helpful. That goes back to, I think that hits back to what I was trying to get at earlier with, like, what does the other want of my ego? Like, so it's, it's not the, like, what do you want of me, but what do you want me to want? to be you know like what do you want what do you want just tell me what you want me to wash the dishes i'll wash the dishes no i don't want, want you to wash the dishes i want you to want to wash the dishes right uh, and it's that that's kind of where i was going with that so like i'm taking on your or or either taking on or being attacked with your desire for me to be desirous in place of my own ability to develop my own right the anxiety is that i i have to adopt yours i don't get to have my own kind of thing that is super interesting it there's a there's a part of our readings for tonight that I don't understand. And and I don't mean that I understand everything else, but there's a part that I feel is important that I don't quite get. But I think this brings us to it. I mentioned it earlier at the start where I tried to answer the question that Lacan poses here. What does the desirous big other want from me at the level of my ego? And what I suggested looking at pages 45 and 46 was that the big O other in a desirous state wants me to show up and signal my castration. This is part of what Lacan is saying on 45 and 46. 46 is where it really heats up in the first full paragraph. What the neurotic shrinks back from is not castration, 
as Freud suggested, but from turning his castration into what the other lacks. He shrinks back from turning his castration into something positive, namely the guarantee of the function of the other. This strikes me as very important. I don't know that we've read enough of the seminar to say how this is going to play out, but there's something here about castration being used to guarantee the big other that really trips up the neurotic, that really throws them into a state of anxiety, that somehow the other answers the question, what do you want by saying, I want you to show up and show me how messed up you are. Show me how dependent you are on me. And I guess maybe the source of anxiety here is that you might realize that the big other needs that. So in other words, they might depend on your dependency. And that's kind of a scary place to be, an anxious place to be, because they're supposed to be the great container, the holder, that guarantees our identity. But instead, what they would be doing is saying, I depend on your subservience to me. Kind of reminds me of the scene in Family Guy, if you watch this show, where Peter Griffin commissions a series of taglines from his father-in-law that he wants to be able to use. And so, for instance, um, one tagline is, um, if somebody's complaining, Peter's supposed to respond, take it up with my ass. It's the only one who gives a crap. So he has a series of taglines that he will use. One of them, though, is relevant here. It's shape up or show me your balls. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. But in this context, it might be. Maybe what the big other is demanding in this moment is show me your balls. Or at least where they used to be. Symbolically speaking, show me that you don't have them. That's what I like. So I find this to be kind of a riddle, 45 to 46. There's also some good stuff on this on page 53 as well. Because it's the neurotics demand that the big other tell them what they want. Tell me what you want from me. Eventually, Lacan says on 53, they come up against the D0 of demand. That, in the end, we see the castration relation appear at the far limit of demand. What pops up is castration, which I would suggest, and I'll probably start here next time, is where um, the neurotic stumbles into anxiety, even when they think they've escaped it. They think they've escaped it by forcing the big other to issue demands. Tell me what you want from me. Because at, at least by issuing a demand, they can solve the mystery that is giving them anxiety. So you can think about yourself confronted with that praying mantis and posing a question to it. What do you want from me? And you really hope it's going to answer, because that might give you a clue as to which mask you're wearing and set your mind at ease. 
So the neurotic thinks that they can escape anxiety by forcing the big other into a circuit of demand, forcing it to respond. Tell me what it is you want from me. But somehow there's a trap in there because beyond that, where demands finally run out, that castration, that issue of castration pops up again. So I think this will be work that we have to do next time. I think it's the biggie. So I'm I'm really happy that kind of you brought us back to this question of what do they want me to be, parens for them. Now see the the pervert is somebody who says, um, but for real, what do you want me to be for you? I'll be whatever you want. I'll do whatever it is you want me to do. They are absolutely happy to be instrumentalized by the jouissance of the big other. That is the pervert's sexual fantasy, is to be a dildo for the big other. My only goal in life is to get you off. For the neurotic, that's like a horribly anxious position to be in. The neurotic in sex spends a lot of time thinking about whether the other person is enjoying themselves. You see, they're almost neurotic about whether the other is satisfied. They're anxious about that experience. The pervert has no doubt. I am there to fulfill your fantasies. What brings the neurotic anxiety, the pervert enjoys. That also comes up in our readings for today, and it'll be something that we'll need to talk about next time, I think. You could trace it through the graph of desire. So when desire meets fantasy, it has a choice. It can either turn right and go to a signifier of the lack in the other, or it can turn left and dip down into a signified according to a full other. The neurotic takes the left path and the pervert takes the right. The neurotic would never turn right at fantasy because that would be way too anxious to encounter a signifier of the desire of the desirous other. The pervert, though, heads straight for it. And is like, man, I sure hope you're desirous because I'm ready to satisfy that. The neurotic, though, turns left away from that, back into the image and fantasy of a full other and says, listen, you're the one with all the answers. I'm sure you have some answers about your own desire. So please tell me what it is that you want. Let's talk demand. At least then I don't have to experience anxiety. I may not like what it is you say you want from me, but at least I have some guidance. So that's how that would go. Well, I think that one will probably be for next time for sure. This is great. My whole goal was to outlast you all. And we're down to me and five more people, it looks like. So this is good. It means everybody else is satisfied or at least tired or perhaps just moving on or perhaps living a life of regret in this moment or no. What other questions do you all have? I'm here to serve. Spoken like a true pervert. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you, sir. May I have another? That's the thing too about the neurotic that we learn in these readings is that Lacan broaches a topic that analysts deal with all the time, which is, wait, my patient is neurotic, but they have perverse fantasies. And Lacan doesn't really see that as a problem. He's like, that's the nature of the neurotic is that they, they have these kind of perverse fantasies, but they're just fantasies. It doesn't mean they have the clinical structure of perversion. We're going to talk about that. Oddly enough, I believe that one of the great topics in seminar 10 is the clinical structure of perversion, notably sadism and masochism. So this is just the start of that, I suspect. Uh, Sam, in that turn you were just talking about where the neurotic won't go up the graph to the signifier of the barred other, do you think there's the relationship between that and um, them being confronted with that lack of lack? That's that's the anxiety-provoking thing there? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, if we were going to try and cram this into the graph of desire, I would say that's it. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.